This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 11. Sometimes it snows in April. Sometimes it snows in April. Sometimes I feel so bad. Sometimes I wish that life was never ending. But all things, they say, never last. Prince. Sometimes it snows in April. One. Kevin Nealon. I have had all sorts of celebrity run-ins over the course of my life and career in music, some not very notable, and others that only slightly tip the scale in favor of making them stories worthy enough to be told. Here are some highlights. Hit 80s band A Flock of Seagulls offered me cocaine when Exploding Boy opened for them in the late 80s. I didn't have the slightest clue what a bump even was. I had to have them explain it to me. I wasn't even 16 yet, and I obviously said no, but it's pretty funny. I was in New Orleans for a bachelor party weekend with a group of guys for one of my closest friends in the early 2000s. We all ate dinner at a famous but also very small restaurant called Giacomo's. Seated one table over from us, merely feet away, was Trent Reznor and all of the members of Nine Inch Nails. I recall Trent seated at the head of the table looking to me a bit like a goth version of Jesus at the Last Supper. Very intimidating. Rochester native and famed lead singer of the band Foreigner, Lou Graham once came out to an early Exploding Boy show. We found this out just before we went on that night, and sure enough, there was Lou, practically in the front row, wearing, of all things, a jean jacket with a giant Foreigner patch on it. We were all freaking out that he was there. And by the way, for my money, Lou is one of the most criminally underrated rock singers of all time. In my opinion, he deserves to be name-checked along with people like Steven Tyler, Robert Plant, Chris Cornell, and Roger Daltrey as one of the all-time greats. We only found out later that Lou was on a panel of judges for an event in Rochester, I believe only held once, called the Rammies, or Rochester Area Music Awards. We attended the ceremony as we were nominees in the Best Live Performance category for 1989, and, as luck would have it, we won the trophy that night. 
Lou Graham himself presented it to us, and I remember him handing it directly to me and saying, Congratulations, great band. So, I won a Rammy. I've been trying to add a G to that ever since. No luck yet. I once passed on an opportunity to hang out with late music legend Jeff Buckley because I had no idea who he was at the time. His first single, Last Goodbye, was only just starting to get played on radio a little bit. He was doing an acoustic tour and was staying with our manager Tony Gross out at his place, sleeping on his couch no less. I vividly remember Tony calling me and saying, You should come out and meet Jeff Buckley. His father was the famous folk singer Tim Buckley. I think you guys would get along really great. I passed on it and I have no idea why. And it was only months later after I had become a huge fan of his that I regretted not accepting the invitation. And after his death, this missed opportunity became even more poignant for me. In the most random of events, only several years back, I was invited to a Christmas party that the late Naomi Judd and her husband Larry Strickland happened to also be attending in Leaper's Fork, just outside of Nashville. For those not familiar, Mr. Strickland was one of Elvis Presley's backup singers. I didn't speak with either of them for very long that night, but I remember them both being very kind, unassuming, down-to-earth, and also genuinely interested in finding out more about me. And that's how I recall our brief interaction. When I had first moved to Nashville almost 10 years ago, I went to a Kroger grocery store just around the corner from my house early on a Sunday morning. I was barely in the front door when I spotted music legend John Oates of Hall & Oates directly in front of me, walking toward the produce department with his wife. I have been a huge fan of Hall & Oates since I was a little kid. Many of the first records I ever owned were Hall & Oates records. I don't get starstruck very easily. I have a very short list of people that would have that effect on me. And, as I found out, John Oates is apparently one of those people. I ended up directly behind he and his wife at checkout that day, and I just couldn't bring myself to say anything to him. I desperately wanted to, but I chicken shitted out of it. This event, as luck would have it, started a string of John Oates sightings around Nashville for me over the next few years. It was almost like the universe was either giving me more opportunities to get the nerve to say something to him, or was playing a very cruel joke on me because I was never able to. On another occasion, I was on my way into an office building downtown, and he was right behind me, and I held the door for him and once again froze up. I couldn't say anything. Another time, I was at a gas station filling my car up, and when I looked over at the pump just across from me, there he was again, John Oates, close enough to talk to, just putting gas in his sports car. I clammed up, said nothing. Strike three, and I have not gotten a fourth chance. Actor Tony Danza was at one of Exploding Boys gigs at the China Club in New York City in the early 90s. We found this out at the end of the night as we were loading out, and he was drunkenly stumbling out at the same time we were packing up our gear. He gave us a quick thumbs up as he left. We opened for legendary Joe Walsh of the Eagles at the China Club also in the early 90s, and although we never met him that night, we watched as he drunkenly and sloppily played through a set of some of his biggest hits with Ringo Starr's son, Zach Starkey, on drums. 
This was evidently before Joe quit drinking. I believe he's been sober for a while now, but he was in rare form that evening. We also opened for 80s rock icon Billy Squire at the China Club not long after the Joe Walsh show, and it was one of the first nights I ever got drunk. Evidently, we got a bunch of free drink tickets that night, and I took a little extra advantage of it after we had finished our set. I was drinking Heineken. A lot of Heineken. The house sound engineer that night loved my guitar playing. He would not stop complimenting me. So much so that after Billy Squire's set, he found me in the crowd and told me there was going to be a late-night jam session with Billy Squire, some of his band members, and some surprise guests, and he wanted me to be part of that jam session. He led me to a back room at the venue. Billy Squire and some of his band were seated at a table having some drinks and hanging out. He introduced me to Billy and the guys as a great guitar player from the opening band. I immediately recognized a guy named Carmine Rojas seated right in front of me. And if you don't know, Carmine is a world-famous bassist who at the time was playing with David Bowie. He also toured and played with Rod Stewart, Tina Turner, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, Billy Joel, B.B. King, Mick Jagger, Steve Winwood, Carly Simon, and Peter Frampton. And the list goes way on. All legends on his resume. Being as tipsy as I was, I looked right at him and said, Hey, you're a drummer, aren't you? He just looked at me blankly and said, I play bass. Open mouth, insert foot. I had seen this guy on literally every single music video on MTV at that time. I should have known better. Thankfully, the late night jam session never happened. Disaster averted. I once played a song in front of Peter Frampton with Chuck Wicks at a place called City Winery in Nashville at an awards ceremony for an organization called Musicians on Call. Peter was there presenting an award. The only problem that night was that we were in such a rush to get on stage that our guitars were out of tune with one another. Once we had strummed the first few chords, there was no turning back. It probably wasn't enough to be noticeable to most people, but we were out just enough to make my head go sideways like a dog. I am 100% sure that Peter Frampton knew. As I looked out at the crowd from the stage, I noticed him sitting less than three feet away from me, and my only thought was, Peter Frampton thinks I suck. All these little run-ins aside, One of my most notable celebrity stories involves comedian, actor, and legendary SNL alum, Kevin Nealon. I had a regular gig in Ybor City outside of Tampa, Florida when I was living in Gainesville. The place was called The Green Iguana and was in a little complex upstairs from a comedy club. Kevin was headlining one particular weekend when I was playing there upstairs. One of the female bartenders there, who also happened to be an unabashed fan of mine, told me that Kevin had been at her bar every night after his show downstairs all weekend. The Green Iguana had live acoustic entertainment every night that weekend, and I was the Sunday guy. Kevin apparently commented to my bartender friend on Friday night that he thought the acoustic guy was pretty good. She said, If you think this guy is good, just wait until Sunday night when Michael J. plays. The next night, Kevin was back at her bar after his show and made another comment about the Saturday acoustic guy. He said, this guy is even better than the guy last night. To which my bartender friend said, I told you, just wait. Come up Sunday and hear Michael J. 
he's better than both the other guys. So by the time I was loading in on Sunday evening, the bartender told me all about Kevin Nealon. She said, He's coming up tonight to watch you. I've been talking you up all weekend. Okay. No pressure there. Two of my female friends who lived in Tampa also happened to show up that night early and took a table up front. I knew these girls from Gainesville and, full disclosure, they were both really good-looking young college graduates. After I had started my first set, I looked over at the entrance and, of course, Kevin Nealon himself came walking in and sat at the bar and, as nearly as I could tell, seemed to be enjoying my music. On my first break, the bartender brought him over and he introduced himself and told me the story of how she'd been talking me up every night. He then said, She wasn't lying, man. You've been the best guy all weekend. I was incredibly flattered. I told him what a huge fan I was of his and he was so down to earth and so easygoing that it just felt like I was hanging out with an old friend after only a few minutes. Kevin was very interested in finding out about my guitar pedal board. I was doing quite a bit of live loop sampling in my gig at the time. Kevin told me he played six-string banjo and asked if he could come up on stage and get a little rundown of my rig. I happily obliged him, and afterward we went and joined my two attractive female friends at their table up front. It ended up being a really quiet Sunday there, which was kind of nice, because no one bothered Kevin or us. We were able to just hang and talk with him the whole time. Kevin was one of the funniest people I had ever met up to that point. I mean, of course he made his living doing primarily stand-up comedy and sketch comedy, but this wasn't a forced kind of funny. It was all just lightning-quick wit and very situational kind of humor. He just rolled with the ongoing conversation and had us all on the floor laughing the whole time. At one point, I was telling him that I had my music featured in a few movies and television shows, and that I had done some work scoring a sitcom pilot that never saw the light of day written by the guy who wrote the movies Liar Liar and Heartbreakers. Not remembering that Kevin was actually in the movie Heartbreakers with Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt, without missing a beat, he quickly said, Heartbreakers? I think I was in that movie. It caught me off guard and made me laugh really hard. He ended up staying for the rest of the night and watching my whole performance, and we actually closed the bar and walked out together. I asked him for a quick photo, which I will share to my socials so you can see it, but keep in mind, this was the era of flip phones, so the quality is terrible. Kevin is also considerably taller than I am, so you'll see that in the photo as well. It was a special night and an incredible experience with one of the all-time great comedians and comedic actors of our time, and I will never forget it. Two. Prince. When discussing Prince, yes, that Prince, many things come to mind. Musical genius, enigma, multi-instrumentalist, prolific songwriter, incredible song and dance man, gone way before his time. The Purple One, at one time the artist formerly known as Prince, Prince Rogers Nelson, American singer-songwriter, musician, record producer, dancer, and actor, the recipient of numerous awards and nominations. He is widely regarded as one of the greatest musicians of his generation and of all time. 
He was all these things and much, much more. What most people don't remember or maybe don't even know about Prince was that he was known for having an exceptional eye for spotting talent. He created numerous musical groups and wrote hit songs for other artists. And throughout his career, Prince surrounded himself with other musicians that he supported, mentored, and studied. Bottom line, Prince had a history of finding new talent. At one point in the early part of 1990, my band, Exploding Boy, nearly became one of the bands in a long line of artists that Prince had a hand in helping out. We were all pretty much fresh out of high school at that time. Our relationship with our manager, Tony Gross, was still in its infancy. Tony, who was always on the hunt for new opportunities for us, made the acquaintance of a woman who was an industry insider. She possessed an uncanny knack for being able to talk her way into offices, situations, and opportunities that 99% of other people would need appointments for. And she did it based on her charm alone. For the purposes of this story, she will remain nameless for reasons I will not go into. Suffice it to say, it's just better not to bring her into this forum by name. Let sleeping dogs lie, as it were. For that reason, I will simply refer to her as Emily. Emily liked us a lot. It was obvious from the moment that we met her that she had a soft spot for the members of Exploding Boy. We were young and full of vitality and relatively innocent. I think she liked that we weren't jaded or tarnished by the cruelty of the music business and of the world at large at that point. She was much more used to dealing with the cutthroat music business and the mostly unsavory characters that dwelled within it. Somehow, and it's still not clear to anyone involved at the time, she had some kind of connection to Prince or his management or his team. Either that or she was able to talk her way into his management office. She did a similar thing with David Bowie's management company on a trip with Tony Gross to New York City at one point. He just watched in awe as she worked her charm and magic and got them both into a meeting with Bowie's manager without an appointment, on the spot. She evidently made some kind of pitch on our behalf to someone, which might have even been Prince himself, which included leaving a cassette of our material in either his possession or his manager's possession. Supposedly, as the story goes, he took a listen to whatever was on this cassette and liked it enough to declare, in Emily's words to us, This band is good enough. I have a show scheduled at the Palace of Versailles in France and I would like them to be the openers. I have absolutely no recollection of what material we were pushing at that time, so I have no idea what he might have heard on that cassette that impressed him so much. I wish I did, but maybe it's better not knowing. When Purple Rain came out in 1984, I was completely obsessed with Prince. I remember seeing his early videos for songs like Little Red Corvette and 1999 and really liking that stuff, but I have to say that the first time I heard the song Let's Go Crazy and the guitar solo section at the end began, I instantly felt that I had a new guitar hero to look up to. I always saw Prince playing guitar in his videos, but I never knew that he could actually play guitar. I immediately began paying more attention to all his other music, and I quickly went out and bought the Purple Rain soundtrack and started trying to learn and absorb as much of it as I could, especially the end solo on Let's Go Crazy and all the guitar parts on the title track, Purple Rain. We used to rent VHS tapes from Blockbuster at that time, showing my age here once again, 
And as soon as the film Purple Rain became available there, I rented it for multiple weekends in a row, studying every bit of what Prince was doing. There's a scene in the film where the actor who plays Prince's father plays a song on piano called Father's Song, which is basically a slower version of the song Computer Blue. The writing credit to Father's Song is given solely to John L. Nelson, and a writing credit is also given to his father for Computer Blue, shared with Prince, Wendy, and Lisa, presumably for inclusion of the melody from Father's Song. It's never been made clear as to whether Prince's father actually wrote the tune or Prince gifted him with the credit. Either way, the melody's really connected with me. I recorded this beautiful and haunting piano song very primitively from the TV onto a cassette using a handheld recorder, and I listened to it over and over, and then I learned it on piano by ear. And it's still one of the first things I play when I sit down to any piano or keyboard to this day. I was just so moved by it. I continued to fall in love with much of the music Prince released after Purple Rain. I still count the song Raspberry Beret off of the album Around the World in a Day as one of my all-time favorite songs. I never get tired of it. Also to this day, I can't listen to the song Sometimes It Snows in April without becoming incredibly emotional. To me, it's one of the most beautiful and haunting songs ever written. I think you get the point. To be told that we'd be going to France to open for Prince was beyond our scope of comprehension at the time. It still doesn't feel real to me all these years later, even though I know that it was. Our manager Tony's wife worked for a law firm at the time. Remember me mentioning that Exploding Boy had a group of attorneys that invested in releasing our debut album New Generation early on in the podcast? Yup, same group of lawyers. We were kept abreast almost daily by Tony's wife of all the contract negotiations that were ongoing as part of arranging our appearance at this landmark concert event with Prince at the Palace of Versailles. The Versailles show was to be part of what was being called the Nude Tour, which was a greatest hits tour by Prince. While his previous tour had drawn critical praise, the high cost of the concert tour production made it a financial disappointment. Thus, Prince eliminated much of the excessiveness of the previous tour to be more financially viable. To make the tour as cost-effective as possible, Prince decided not to tour in the U.S. at this time, and thus he did not return to performing in North America until the Act One tour in 1993. We were told that we'd all need to get passports as soon as possible to allow us to travel overseas, as none of us had one. I will remind you that the oldest member of the band was only 19 at the time. Tony sequestered us into a warehouse space in downtown Rochester for a period of intense rehearsals that lasted for a couple of weeks to make sure that we were going to be ready to share a stage with Prince. We never had structured rehearsals that early on, so this was a bit like going to rock and roll boot camp. Aside from being our manager, Tony owned the recording studio where we did all our recording and was also our producer and a musical director of sorts. He worked very closely with us during this time, much like he did when we were in the studio, by dissecting every single part of every single song, tightening them all up, and making them the best that they all could be. He also helped us to craft the best set list and show that we possibly could put together. In essence, he was teaching us how to properly rehearse. While we had a lot of natural abilities and chemistry as a band, we owe a lot to Tony Gross for helping to push us forward as a band and for helping to craft the overall sound and aesthetic that we eventually ended up with on our debut album. 
We couldn't have done it nearly as well without him. And I'm not sure any of us has ever really told him this. Thank you, Tony. Sadly, after tons of musical preparation, procuring passports, preparing for international travel, and slowly wrapping our heads around the fact that the genius artist Prince had supposedly declared us good enough to open for him, something fell through with the proposed show in France at the Palace of Versailles. As a result, this show, which was to take place on June 15th of 1990, never happened. It is, however, on a comprehensive list online of the Prince tour dates for that year. I will post a photo on my socials for you all to take a look at. Being that I had a lot to do with the early writing of material for Exploding Boy, I still count this particular swing and near miss as one of the proudest moments of my life and career. I'd always hoped I'd get to meet Prince somewhere down the line, but I never did before his death in April of 2016. I still walk just a little taller in my musical shoes knowing what I do, though, and I still wonder how things might have turned out if we had gotten to do that show with him. I guess we'll never know. Because in this life, things are much harder than in the afterworld. This life, you're on your own. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M-I-S-T-E-R-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening.